Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Today, I'm really happy to be joined by Toby Avery, who's the Chief Digital Information Officer at Surrey and Borders Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. So that's a a medium-sized mental health and learning disability trust. And Toby has a very distinguished background working in many NHS organisations over the years. And I'm just really happy to have you with me. So hello, Toby. How are you today? Hey, Victoria. Yeah, I'm really good. And I'm very happy to be with you today. And I've completely failed to turn off my notifications because I don't know if you heard that, but I just got a massive great ping. Well, I Sorry. think we should leave that in the recording because that's <laughs> uh, that's the world we operate in, isn't it? So, Toby, I'm I really want to speak to you today about user-centred design and the approach you've taken in Surrey and Borders, which I've not seen anywhere else and I'm just really, really curious about. But before we get into that, you know, if you look at any news article about the NHS, we all know there's a workforce crisis, we've got uh, striking nurses, you know, this is a really difficult, particularly difficult time in the NHS. We've got A&E ambulances um, queuing outside emergency departments. I'm just really curious to know what life is like as a CDIO in an NHS trust at this particular moment uh, for the NHS. I think it's challenging. Um, in the mental health, uh, learning disability space, we we obviously don't face some of the very acute challenges that are being seen in our, the, our acute uh, trusts with, as you say, ambulances waiting outside, A&Es and so on and so forth. But I don't think that means that the pressure isn't any less. It's just different and often not as well publicised or, or, or doesn't capture the media's attention in the same way. So so we, through the last few years, have seen probably a 50% demand uh, increase across all of uh, the majority of our services. We're seeing increased acuity and uh, for, for you know, a significant portion of our uh, the people that we're seeing so the pressure is is very much there you know at this particular point in time it's that uh, end of financial year beginning of new financial year period and so everyone's trying to work out how much money they've got which is never as clear as you think it should be in the NHS. And uh, there's a reduction in available funding, uh, I think, for pretty much everyone. So all of those things, you know, increasing demand, reducing it, reduction in real, real terms funding, quite clearly creating a lot of pressure on how we deliver our services. Uh, and, and that then flows on to, you know, that's the real world that we're we're living in. You know, what does that mean for someone in sort of my my sort of role was with my sort of board and executive responsibilities? Obviously, you know, that that's a cross-trust issue that that we're trying to manage and, and deal with with my digital hat on. You know, how we how are we helping support our services and, and make sure that we've got the right data in the right place at the right time. Um, how how are we making sure that basics are working like wi-fi and and, and laptops are fresh and, and startup times are um, you know good and all those sorts of things so that people are not being uh, hindered by the things that we're trying to do to help them um, and I think I think that's one of our, our you know biggest challenges so I think it's it's a bit different from the acute sector, but the pressures are, are definitely still there, and many of the problems are the same. You mentioned being um, a member of the executive team, so you sit on the board of um, directors for your trust, and not everyone will know that that's not always such a common thing. A lot of CIO type roles tend to be reporting into a finance director, for example. They don't sit; they don't have a seat at the board table. Could you just tell us a bit about what that's 
like? Because I think lack of board confidence and awareness of digital is often a challenge and a problem, but you're there at the table, part of that conversation. So what, what's your take on how important it is for someone in your role to have um, that seat at the table? I think it's been incredibly valuable. Um, I might be slightly biased, though, because I'm the one with the seat at the table. My previous chief executive made the comment to me after I'd been on the exec team and board for about a year. We were having our annual appraisal and I said to her, what difference is it making me being here? You know, is it is it turning out you know, like you expected or or something to that effect? And, and she turned around and, and she said to me, Toby, we are having conversations. And I didn't think I was making that much difference. But she said, we're having conversations now we never had before you were on the team. So for me, that's the biggest biggest thing. It's, it's not necessarily about me going in there every every week and doing the rah-rah sort of chant for digital and data and that sort of thing. But it's about slowly influencing the conversation. So where we're at now, actually, our chief operating officer or director of nursing or someone else will will start raising the point around data and digital and, and how we're using it to uh, change practice, consider what we're doing, think about demand capacity and all those sorts of things in a way that they weren't doing four or five years ago. So for me, that's the win. It's, it, it's changing the conversation so that actually digital and data becomes part of our day-to-day language as, as a board and as an executive team um, in the same way that workforce should and safety should and quality should and finance should and, and all these other things. So, you know, I can't say I've gone in there and made any radical changes in the last four years or so that I've been on the exec team board here. But what we have definitely done is seen a shift in the conversation. Uh, you know, obviously, I have been able to champion digital. But but for me, it's, it's not so much about that. It's about being able to have that shift in conversation. So we start that journey towards being a more digital and data literate organisation. And presumably, um, it works in reverse as well, that for you with your responsibilities as CDIO, you're really tapped into what the medical director cares about, what the director of nursing cares about, and you can think about how your team and function can respond and engage to the things that are keeping them up at night. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's baptism of fire when you first, <laughs> yeah, you go from being responsible for, you know, a digital directorate or division that's reporting into the CFO to sitting on the exec team um, and having corporate responsibility, still having to deliver that same digital stuff, but having a much broader responsibility. But as you start becoming comfortable with that, you start seeing the world through other people's eyes in a way that you just couldn't before. So being in those conversations, you're 100% right. You know, uh, they have influenced me and in how I've uh, adjusted my leadership and how I've uh, focused in, in in different areas in terms of what we're doing to try and uh, meet the, the needs of the organization and the people that we serve in the best way that we can. So I'm going to just shift the conversation then to um, my favourite topic, (laughs) usability and user-focused digital services. I've been aware for some time of the work that you and your team have done. Um, You have System One as your main electronic patient record and you um, you have a head of design role. I don't know whether there are any comparable roles that I've found across the NHS. Some have come and gone. You have teams creating user interfaces on top of System 1, really focused, as I understand it, on the clinical workflow, on usability, and you get really high satisfaction um, with the digital systems that your colleagues, uh, your clinical and administrative colleagues use every day. Could you just maybe start in a bit more of a sort of, before we get into the detail, on a high level way you know what got you into the headspace that meant that that's the route you've taken and 
and, 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 and the approach that you've taken to digital? Because I think it's quite unusual. I don't know if we're the only only ones, but but certainly it's not super super common from from what we've seen. So I have a leadership principle that that I don't know it all. My objective as a leader is to try and find talent and let them do what they do best. And and that's where this has come from. So so I have, at, at the time, he was my deputy CIO, uh, Mike Covey. And he came to me one day and he said, Toby, we're getting nowhere with System 1. It, you know, it's not, you know, not System 1's fault, it's not TPP's fault necessarily. It's just where we're trying to configure and use System 1, we are just not driving it forward in the way that we need to to uh, meet the needs of our, our staff. And he, he said, I think we need to build a design team. I said, what's a design team? And so he, he talked me through it. And he I, I think he'd spent a bit of time looking at the GDS work around uh, user-centered design and stuff like that. And he, he talked me through the high level. And I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Have we got some projects that we can test this on? We happen to have a couple of particular change projects that the organization was doing that, that were dependent on System 1 that, that we could apply this this thinking to. And he, he says to me, we've got this individual, a lady called um, Helen Potter. She's a nurse. I want to bring her in and task her with building our, our design team and leading on these projects. And uh, I said, well, where are we going to fund it from? And, and he said, well, might need you to give me some um, some air cover on that, Toby. <laughs> so so we, we agreed to take a punt between us on funding uh, a design team and, and bringing uh, Helen in to, to spearhead that work with this real strong nursing clinical focus and, and, and lens around user experience. And she came in and she built the team up and you know, some of it ended up being substantive. Some It was a mix of substantive and contractors. It was trying to get the people into that, that had the relevant skills and a bit of it was trying to train some people up and stuff like that. And we went and did these two projects. Uh, one was for our single point of access and one was for another service within the, the organization. And it was interesting. We used the same approach, the same methodology uh, with both services and got completely different results. The one service who shall rename, remain nameless, it was a bit of disaster is probably too strong a word, but it was difficult. It, it, it didn't get the results that we wanted to, to, to get. They weren't particularly happy with what they got out of it and we weren't particularly happy with the way it was delivered. The other service, the SPA, it went really well. And while it didn't completely revolutionize how we use System 1, it made it very clear by using a user-centered design approach and getting you know, really good involvement from the staff that were, were going to be using that, uh, you know, operating that service in terms of all the design uh, work that they did, that the outcome that we got with system one could be vastly different from what we'd experienced in the past i think they were probably the first team that came away and said actually system one works um for us it, it's doing kind of what we want it to do and, and it's kind of getting there and and off the back of that that success and, and that little ray of positivity that we had out of that after some really challenging years uh, using System 1 and really not quite getting it where we, we knew we needed to as an organization or where, where we knew it could be, you know, in terms of supporting our organization. We said, OK, that's worked. Let's build on this and evolve the approach. And any new services that we spin up for, within System 1, new clinical services, um, and that includes some of our charity partners, we've built new units within the System 1 uh, uh, solution and we've taken a user-centered design approach uh, to do that. And as far as I'm concerned, it's just got better and better every every time that we've uh, taken that approach. That has then enabled us to build up the capacity and the resources that we that we have in that space. So at the moment, we're we're running five different design teams focused on different transformation programs across the organisation. 
this isn't just about discovery and user research, it's actually about front-end design, like creating a user interface that is pleasing and easy to use rather than people jumping all over a often not very usable electronic patient record. Where we were at before and still are, we, we have not solved it across the whole organisation yet. So we still are in not the best place in some parts of our organisation. But where we were at before was everyone had a massive clinical tree at the left-hand side of their System 1 screen. For a variety of reasons, we dumped everything into one big bucket. Um, it wasn't intuitive. It wasn't user-friendly. It was difficult to find stuff. And so what we've been able to do through through this approach is take the, the System 1 solution, which has some great functionality in it. One of our teams says, making System 1 sexy is his, his catchphrase. He wants to make System One sexy. You know, we've taken we've taken System One and, and we've we've led uh, skins on the top effectively that have allowed us to create uh, workflows and interfaces that meet the needs of that particular service or team in a way that we weren't able to before. So instead of having this massive tree that is a couple of pages long of of stuff that they needed to potentially find and sort through and click on, uh, they now you know get much more of a a, a web page like view with maybe half a dozen boxes on it, you know, that they need to click on for their particular needs and their particular service. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say it's perfect. You know, it's, it's all a work in progress um, and, and we're looking to, to develop and improve as, as we go on. But through use it, using user-centered design principles, we've been able to take the product into a place that we spent three or four years trying to develop it to before we just never got there and now we've got people happy uh with the product that, that, that they're getting what's really exciting going forward is is we've now just uh, signed off the business case to roll that out into all our core services so we're going to re-architect across the whole of the organization not just the new ones so the new ones have had special treatment because they've been been new but we're now going to kind of take apart the whole of the system and take that approach across all of our core services as well so I guess, you know, you've got your immediate benefit of user satisfaction. So people feeling happy using the um, the interface. What, what, what have the, been the sort of secondary benefits? So I presume there's been some benefits around data quality. So when you're using data to improve services for sort of strategic direction for your trust board, population health management, have you, have you seen a sort of step change in the quality of the data that you're getting at the other end of the EPR? So there's a couple of things that we've seen so far. Um, and there's a lot that we expect to see as we roll out to our core services. This has been a bit of a journey for us. What we've been able to do in some of the existing services that we've built in this way is minimize the free text opportunities within the product. By creating more of a workflow and coding more stuff, uh, you obviously get better data quality. What we've historically done and still happens in, in, in a number of our services is people just dump everything into a free text box. And technically, they've recorded it, so they've done what they you know, need to do to maintain a clinical record, but actually, it's not reportable on. It's in the wrong place. You can't find it. It creates clinical safety issues because the next person comes along and doesn't know where to look for it and all those kinds of things. So those are the sorts of things that we can massively improve through this process and will make a huge difference to our core services as we, we start deploying out into our core services, but already making a difference at a smaller scale in these new services um, that, that we've, we've been building over the last couple couple of years. So just removing that that free text opportunity means that one, the workflow that you build for a particular service is smoother and better supports, and it might never be perfect, but it better supports their clinical workflow. But it also means that we're then capturing that data and it can be coded appropriately and therefore it can flow through to our operational reporting, our you know, national submissions and, and, and all those 
other kinds of things that we have to do with the data. One of the things I was struck by when I was doing that, my interview do actually for that paper with public digital and NHS providers around EPR optimization. One of the things I hadn't thought about before was about that clinical design authority. So, so yes, design for users, but you have to be quite um, rigid about things like free text boxes, for example, because you need consistency and you also need to close off you don't want too many options for people when they're trying to input data because it gets confusing. So how have you balanced the user-centred design clinical workflow with the, the the sort of authority, which is this is how we do things and we need to be as consistent as possible? Is that a tension for you? I think it's going to be more of a tension going forward as we move into our core services. So where we've been designing for new services actually we're designing from the ground up. So largely, core practice hasn't been in place. And, and you've got that opportunity to really think it through with the clinicians and, and, uh, and the administrators. You know, how are you going to use it? How are you going to do it? What do we need to implement to meet the needs of this particular service? And you can be much more challenging in that environment. It's easier to be challenging about things like free text boxes. Why do you really need that? You know, can't you do it through a structured data kind of format? Going into our core services, which is what we're just about to embark on, I think that's going to be much trickier because of all those reasons you've said. One, there's a cultural issue. People hate to change. Two, actually just dumping stuff into the free text field is pretty easy. The flip of that is what's an appropriate amount of rigidity versus flexibility within a system design. And I think that rigidity, I can't say the word, rigidity versus flexibility is a really important thing to be aware of. We, we want to be flexible. We want to be able to bespoke thing to, things to services. But if every single service has something completely different from every other service, then we're going to struggle to be able to benchmark effectively, to be able to compare apples with apples, to, to, to understand you know, if everyone has a different care plan template, that's going to be a nightmare. If everyone has a different risk template, that's going to be a, a, a nightmare. You've got to work out what those those items are that need to be standardised, as you say, versus those things that actually we don't really care about because that's actually quite bespoke to that service. You know, we aren't necessarily reporting on it nationally or or whatever the criteria are, and we could be a bit more flexible. What we're doing within our Adapt Plus program, which is our EPR program that we're doing going forward for our core services, we've implemented a clinical design authority as part of that program, um, and that's chaired by our deputy medical director. And we have our chief uh, nursing information officer and our chief medical information officer and our chief clinical information officer and a number of other uh, operational and clinical representatives on on that group to to help us, help guide us through some of these tensions uh, and some of this decision-making process. And and we're expecting some of these debates uh, to come up. Um, And I think we'll see more of it in that space because people are already accustomed to working in a particular way and will be challenging the way they work. And some of their pushback, I expect, will probably be right and we'll have to rethink because there'll be a really good reason why they're doing it in that way. And some of it will have to go, "Mm, actually, you know, that's bad. That's not going to help. That's bad. We need to standardize that across the organization. And so I think, you know, there's going to be some challenging conversations in there as we progress. I'm interested. I was just thinking as you use the word standards. So in the digital world, we tend to talk about standardization and, and, and standards in quality improvement language, we tend to talk about warranted and unwarranted variation, but actually you're talking about pretty much the same thing. In your sort of journey around user-centred design, to what extent have you collaborated with, have you got a QI culture within Serian Borders? Have you looked at the relationship between other change methodologies such as QI and 
Youth Centre Design. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. We have been on a bit of a QI journey the last few years. We have a a, a good QI team in our, our, our trust, I believe, uh, some really talented individuals leading on, on QI. But oftentimes, uh, you know, like you say, the QI methodology and digital design methodology is not worlds apart. We use different language, but you know, we're all using PDSA cycles after, you know, one, one, one in one name or another kind of thing. So, so it, it is very, very similar, but we've often not always headed in the same direction. I think we've now recognized that. Uh, and we are trying to work out how we work better together. What should our common language be is a really interesting question. You know, trying to recruit a, uh, a UX designer or researcher and then ask them to suddenly start, start speaking QI language is probably going to be quite hard, much as you know, an IHI tra- trained QI e- expert is going to struggle to start talking UXD language. You know, so, so, so how, how do we how do we marry that up, um, I think is a really interesting question. We haven't solved it. We have started in the last year or so, we have done a number of really successful projects where our operational colleagues, our QI colleagues, and our digital and design colleagues have come together to work the project um, in an, a real, real sort of multidisciplinary way. And they've been really successful. Uh, we did a Valparate project, um, it must be a year or so ago now, uh, with uh, with the ICS as well, actually. And uh, that was uh, nominated for an HSJ award. It, it it was been really successful and it wouldn't have come together in the way it did if QI and, and our design teams hadn't worked on it together. Um, we've currently got, you know, one of our big transformation programs this last year has been around patient flow through our, our organization and our system. And again, QI have have led and facilitated much of that work, but it's been a very MDT approach. We've had a dedicated design team connected to that transformation program. So so they've had a manager and a design team directly appointed to that transformation program to support that work. So they have been embedded in the work with QI and with operational colleagues to think through uh, and work through um, and and, and collaborate in designing it together. And it's going really, really well. It's it's really successful. So it can be done, but we're all trying to learn those new languages. And and sometimes there's a bit of a tension. And, And what we haven't quite landed as a trust yet is actually how we really align those two things. So we've managed to get it to succeed in a, a few isolated projects, but we haven't quite landed that alignment. And that is a conversation that's ongoing at the moment. How do we better align those two things? You've talked a few times on your workforce, your design team, you've obviously got your your core digital team. How have you tackled attracting people to come and work in the NHS? So one, they're working with electronic patient records. So how much you want to make system one sexy? <laughs> I can't imagine people are going to think any EPR is that sexy when they could be working on some sort of, I don't know, commercial AI project or something. How have you found recruiting people and then actually appointing people when we've got the limitations of agenda for change, appointing people in a competitive salary and then retaining them? Has that been a, a challenge for you? Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> it, it also depends a bit on the particular roles that we're talking about. Where we are based in Surrey, uh, RHQ is in, in Leatherhead, which is about 20 minutes up the road from Tooting. So we're outside of London. So we, we lose, you know, 10 minute train ride and you've, you know, 
and a band 8a is probably four thousand pounds better off so you know just in nhs competition let alone sort of private sector so there's some real challenges uh with that but it has depended on the particular resource you're talking about so we've recruited certain kinds of capabilities easier than others data analysts we've really struggled with over the years some of our other sort of core infrastructure type skills we've really struggled with over the years uh, interestingly while it hasn't been easy uh, we have had some really great success in recruiting some of our design teams you know i was i was I've talked to someone recently who's on one of the design teams and, and they, they kind of said, until I saw this role, I never knew the NHS did user-centered design. And actually, it's, you know, it gives me an opportunity to kind of sew back into that, that feel-good factor. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not working for some some big evil commercial giant. I'm, I'm working for the NHS. I'm trying to sew something back into society. And so I think there's a lot of talent out there that if they knew that these sorts of roles were available, they'd be looking at them uh, within within the NHS. I, I think the challenge we've had is in, you know, the typical route for advertising a job in the NHS is to go to NHS jobs. The only people that look at NHS jobs are people that already work in the NHS. So if you're trying to attract different kinds of talents that and skill sets that don't exist already in the NHS market, just advertising on NHS jobs is not going to be enough. Where we've seen success is, is, is through social media. As we've managed to recruit a few people that have networks on social media, and they have helped by propagating, one, what we do and what we're trying to do as an organization around digital, um, and two, help advertise and propagate particular roles. That has been a route in to NHS jobs that might not have happened otherwise. Most of our design team folk are not lifelong NHS staff members. Most of them have come from other service sectors, some from the private sector, some from charity sector, some from um, sort of other non-profits. You know, we've had people from all sorts of sorts of different areas. Uh, I'm not sure that any of them, might be one or two that have come from within the NHS, but it's been more as a job change than than anything anything else. Um, you know, we, we've had people come from uh, abroad as well. Um, you know, we've got a, one individual I was talking to who's got, uh, I think she said, a master's in user-centered design uh, from outside of the UK. So, you know, we we've but, but it's been through social media. It's been through trying to uh, talk about what we do on Twitter, um, mostly uh, a bit on LinkedIn, but but definitely Twitter and leveraging those networks that, that are out there to just get the fact that we are advertising for a user researcher or a product, product manager or whatever it is um, in front of people that wouldn't normally see that via NHS jobs. Um, and when you do, actually, you've got some half decent interest. Gender for change is always a is always a challenge. And that's, you know, probably largely around uh, having some collaborative conversations with our HR colleagues about how to frame job descriptions so that they are appropriate for agenda for change and appropriate for the market that we're trying to attract. Oh, that's totally fascinating. And I think what I've taken away, like my big takeaway from what you've just said is, yeah, no one looks at NHS jobs unless they're an NHS person. You've got to go and find people. And I guess, you know, you are good at publicising as a team the work you do. And the more you do that, the more you build interest and and people see you as an appealing um, NHS trust to come and work for. So I can see it sort of builds that sort of um, uh, positive sort of circularity. Um, Victoria, can I just say the the other thing that I just remembered that we've we've been quite intentional about, and we were starting to do this before COVID, but um, particularly through COVID, is around flexible working. We are getting more intentional in terms of our adverts about saying we will accept people that mostly work remotely. We will accept, you know, if, if you have 
childcare or you want to work part-time or job share or you know all those sorts of flexible kind of working opportunities you know we've said we will be flexible if you're worried about whether you think you can do the job that is a full-time job give us a call before you apply let's have a chat let's explore your particular situation and see whether we could maybe accommodate that and whether it's worth you applying and just by putting that on the advert Actually, we've got people apply for jobs that we would never have had before. Some amazing people have applied for jobs that probably wouldn't have done uh, if we hadn't been really overt about our flexible working approaches. And, and, from, and from an equality and diversity point of view, has that resulted in a more diverse workforce in your experience? Yeah, no, I, I think it has. I, I have to say, I haven't sat there and sort of done the stats on our directorate. Um, anecdotally, um, I think we have a very, uh, I think we have a pretty diverse directorate. I think there's certain job types that typically have lended themselves more to men than women, um, if, if I was to look at it. But in the past, I've recruited for jobs and there hasn't been a single woman applying for the for the role. And then you, you advertise other types of jobs and actually the majority of applicants are women. I'm not clever enough to work out necessarily why, why that is. But what we have absolutely seen is that um, being more flexible has absolutely created opportunity for uh, a more diverse workforce. And, you know, if I was to sort of do a finger in the air, I'd probably say 40% of my directorate is is um, is female, um, which is, I think, pretty unusual for a, a digital directorate. I might be getting that wrong, but it, it's it's got to be getting close to that, I would I would say. You've, you've now got me thinking, I'm going to go away and check the HR records and have a look. And, you know, in terms of ethnicity and, and, and things like that, I think we've got anecdotally, again, quite a diverse directorate. I, I think certain types of roles, interestingly, we've had a lot of non-British people apply for particular types of roles over the years. I think uh, things like information analysts, oftentimes we see a lot of non-British people apply for. So we've we've ended up with more diversity in that area because that's who's applying for the roles. And I, I, you know, I'm again, I haven't sat here and tried to work out why that is. You know, I, I think we are seeing quite a mixed workforce. Um, where I'm really struggling, if I'm honest, is in my top team. I think we've got quite a, a diverse, uh, from a gender perspective, quite a diverse uh, senior leadership uh, group. Um, but not from a race perspective. There's, you know, we've got one or two people that are non-white, but not many. Um, and, and that's where I'd really like to see a bit of a shift. Uh, I, I think we're missing out on some of the different thinking that can come in with a bit more diversity in that sort of space. And I think that's a, a sort of systemic issue across the NHS. Of course, the Shuri Network, who you will know well, yeah. let's give them a little plug. Uh, have, are doing a lot to promote Black and Asian women within um, senior leadership roles in, in digital roles in the NHS. So hopefully the tide is um, beginning to shift, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of the right things. Toby, before we finish, you um, you took that punt a few years ago, as you said, um, just to try out a user-centred approach on a few projects and you started to reap the benefits and you've obviously got momentum and now started to mainstream the approach. If there's a CIO, CDIO, listening to this uh, podcast and they're thinking, you know, I want to start on this journey. What are, the, what are the things you've learned that would be like, okay, don't do this or do this, that would just help help them learn a bit from your, your experience? Take a risk. Sometimes you need to. Um, sometimes ask forgiveness rather than permission, but understand the risk that you're taking and and do it in a in a measured way. And different organisations have different approaches and and, and tolerance for, for for that sort of thing. So you know, obviously, be cognizant of your 
organization. And then I think the most important thing that we did was find the right person to build that team. The individual that we found, Helen, who I mentioned earlier on, she wasn't a user-centered design expert. She's a nurse. Um, She's now our chief nursing information officer. She's handed those reins on around user-centered design to someone else. But, But she came in with a passion to make a difference. And she, you know, to, to really improve the experience of our, our staff and ultimately the people who are using our services. So that individual and getting someone who is passionate about it, um, who uh, you know, may not have all the requisite skills that you think you need in that place, but is willing and able to go and learn those skills and develop themselves and has the, the mindset to think forward and be proactive and, and develop and nurture talent and also the, the ability to deliver and move things forward. Finding that right person, uh, I think, was the, the, the thing that made it a success, if I'm entirely honest. Sort of, Mike came up with the idea. I said, yes, let's go for it. But the reality is Helen's the one that built that team and, and drove that drove that approach forward so find that right right person and, and and nurture them you know really really you know we've done you know been fortunate to be able to do that with Helen and she's progressed you know significantly through our organization is making a bigger and bigger difference in the organization take that talent and and, and, and really nurture them in terms of don't do's or or, or, or things to watch out for I, I think the thing that we've struggled with probably the most is the culture shift from traditional hierarchical program management type approach to things to a product based approach to things and and we're still wrestling with that and you know every time you take a step forward and you start developing a team that has a real product type approach to how we think about things and then you have a shift in staff someone gets promoted or or whatever whatever it is new people come in and with the best will in the world if they aren't bought into that approach that that culture they will revert to what they know best which often in the nhs is hierarchy it's program management it's it's it's, it's that kind of thing uh, and and you've got to kind of swing the pendulum back over again to that sort of product type approach to ag- agile methodology and and those kinds of things so i, th- I think that's been our, our one of our biggest challenges is is trying to keep the needle in the right place in terms of you know what we set out to do a few years ago are we still doing that maybe we needed to check in a little bit more regularly and and, and see whether where, where the pendulum was was swinging and make sure we were was staying on, on on track with that i think i think that's probably been one of our biggest challenges in in that space that's such a fascinating um insight um toby i really appreciate how frank you've been in our conversation and i've learned a lot and i hope and whoever's out there listening has learned a lot as well. Um, Thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it, Toby. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.